Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight's uh, talk, the number seven, is called The Secular Conflict. Notice the term. Okay, I chose that a title specifically, uh, Secular Conflict Between Israel and the Arabs. Today, I think we see elements, uh, we're, we're, we're frightened by the fact that it has elements of religious conflict. Isn't this true? You get the whole Muslim world riled up. This was not the case in the 50s, and that, that's the interesting part, isn't it? Uh, to, you'd wonder why, uh, but it wasn't the case. Well, why did you have Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and these type of types popping up all over the place trying to take out Israel in the 50s, and yet... The, uh, the great beast was sleeping. Why? So it was a secular conflict between Israel and the Arabs, a challenge of Nasser and the Arab nationalism, 52 to 56. So here we go. First of all, as I say, as I usually start, uh, in order to understand the 50s, you got to know before that. And we're look, talking, of course, obviously about the Middle East. And the Middle East has always been a challenge of religion and politics. Perhaps many countries are, but it's certainly true in religion. This idea of separation of church and state or the secular per se, has never quite existed by itself, ever, in the Middle East. Going back, obviously, to the biblical times and before that. Religion and politics intermix. And remember, both the Jewish religion as well as the uh, Muslim religion have no tradition of separating the secular. It's only in the New Testament you say, give to Caesar that which is Caesar and God was God. We have nothing like that in the uh, Torah, and they have, certainly have nothing like that in the Quran. So, talking about clashes of uh, civilizations over here. Europe, in the course of its history, the West, as you and I call it, has had long periods when religion dominated politics. No question about that. If you go back long enough, just think about, for example, the Thirty Years' War, in which one half of Germany shechted the other half of Germany, and then the second half shechted the first half, and it was all over Catholic versus Protestant. Okay? Uh, by the time the Thirty Years' War was over, Germany was so depopul- depopulated, Catholic Church gave a hector for a generation to take more than one wife. Okay? Because it was a shortage of men. So just consider... You know, the religion has played a violent role, obviously, in the past in uh, European politics. And yet, eventually, European politics kind of secularized. I mean, take a look at the famous leaders. Uh, I mean, what's that? He got nothing to do with religion. Agreed? He's got nothing to do with religion. I mean, he was a Episcopalian. He had nothing. He had nothing. It was the Church of England. The religion doesn't matter. It had to do with the secular nationalism, right? These are, our, are battles between democracy and Nazism between communism and fascism. See, the isms I'm talking about are, have nothing to do with religion, per se. And this has been enshrined, you might say, in the Western consciousness that uh, culture is one thing and religion is another. Uh, the Muslim world has had a different experience of modernity. It did not undergo this kind of secularization. You don't look in the, in the Middle East, never had a Renaissance, a Reformation, an Age of Reason, an Age of Enlightenment, a scientific era, all the things that we do in Western Civ. Didn't happen over there. And it didn't undergo this kind of secularization where religion died among the elites, which is, of course, the story of the West. True or not true? Certainly in Europe, and probably in America, too, if they'll be honest about it. Uh, religion survives not among the elites. <laughs> okay? Um, in the case of the Middle East, let's get down to specifics. We're dealing with Arabs, and eventually the relationship with Israel. So let's look at the Arabs. 
The Arabs have been out of political business uh, for a long time. Let me explain what I mean. The whole Middle East was ruled by the Ottoman Turks for 400 years, uh, 1518, uh, 1918. Okay? This guy conquered uh, the area of, uh, what shall I say, um, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, all that stuff. And his son, Suleiman the Magnificent, took out Iraq. So, and then, of course, they conquered a third of Europe as well. The Turks are not Arabs. I think we know this now. If you follow the news today, I just saw before I came here, what was it, Egypt uh, got rid of the Turkish ambassador, or Turkey got rid of the Egyptian ambassador, have another one of these Makhlouksen. The Tur- they are Muslims, that is true. But they're a different race, with a different language and a different tradition. So there are commonalities, but they're a foreign group. So consider what I'm saying. The Arabs were conquered by the Turks 400 years ago, 500 years ago. They, they had no independence or anything like that. They were ruled by a foreign power, if you want to call it that, except it was a Hamish foreign power because they're Muslims. And when this guy, Salim, conquered the Middle East in such an impressive way, the Arabs declared him the caliph. You understand? He got the, uh, the uh, Sanhedrin, the Arab uh, rabbis, to declare him the, the caliph, which means he's the head of the Islamic religion. The Ottoman sultans had that role. And so Arab nationalism, so to speak, was quiescent was not there for hundreds and hundreds of years. The 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s. That's a long time, you see? And so the countries that you think about, once about, none of that existed. There wasn't such a thing as Syria or Egypt or Iraq or Arabia or any of those other countries. There. It was this one big glob called the Turkish Empire. You understand? And we know today, because of the civil wars that are breaking out all over the place all the time, that, you know, something we didn't know yesterday. Oh, this is the Alawites. Oh, this is the Druze. Oh, this is the Sunnis. This is the Shias. This is another one. I didn't know that. I thought it's all one big, you know, yellow thing on the map. It's like, well, when the Turks were there, it's, so to speak, it's Sunnis. They're Sunni Muslims. But since they dominate to anybody, you know, you mess with the Turks, they chop your head off. So, and then they have the trial. So, so, so <laughs> that, that's how it works. So, wait a second. That means that all the... Uh, groups are in, in a kind of a balanced dissatisfaction, if you follow. You know, they're all ruled by the overlords. And as far as we're concerned, uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, it was a retardant on Arab national feeling. It didn't exist. The Arabs considered themselves subjects of the Turkish Empire, and you know, the other ones are subject of the Catholic Empire and the other ones of the Christian Empire. And that's the way, if anything, the the Muslims always prided themselves. See, we're all part of one kingdom called the Turks. You were broken up with Austria, Prussia, France, England, Spain, and Portugal, and so forth. You know, we, we have a unity, and they did, by the way. And the result is that, uh, from the Jewish point of view, whoever lived in Israel and Palestine, such places, had no national feeling whatsoever. They're just subjects of the Turkish king, even though they are Arabs. Knows their language is Arabic, their culture is Arabic. Um, and anyway, yeah, I mean, look, look at this. Uh, here's all the countries in the Middle East. It's all part of the Turkish Empire at its peak. At its peak. And even in 1914, in other words, even when Turkey, look at this, they lost all the European stuff to the European states through wars. They still had this. You see, here's the Turkey, of course. Here's uh, Syria, uh, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, most of it, and even e- Egypt in a certain way we'll talk about. Um, there was no Arab nationalism. And then it started to change. There is complex reasons for that, but now is not the time to go into this. All I can tell you is, by the very late 1800s, and really in the beginning of the 1900s, around the time the Zionist movement started, very interestingly, around the time of Theodor Herzl, 
you start to get the rise of Arab nationalism. For the first time, certain Arabs say, maybe we should be, uh, break out from under the Turks. Now, that means that they don't, Arab princes, I repeat, princes had always had this desire because princes always want to do that. But only now does it look like it might be a possibility of a possibility. Well, not until the First World War, because the Turks are not going to have any of that. And so what they did is they hanged all the Arab nationalists. Okay? So there was always a lot of hangings in Palestine in the, er, 100 years ago, in 1913, in 1905, 1910, all the rest of it. It's always the Turks hanging Arabs. And so if you, to, to, to put it in a cynical way, this, this could sort of like help the Jews. Do you follow what I'm saying? Those, what, 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 the, the Zionists are not being hanged. They're European citizens or they have the protection of European governments or things like that. That'll make a fuss. If these guys get hanged, nobody cares. Right? And so that's uh, the way it went until the First World War. The First World War, as I explained here years ago, um, changed everything. Okay? Um, the, the, Turkey made the mistake of getting in the war against England and France. And England and France intended to win the war, and they did, as you know. And so the result was, you had Lawrence of Arabia and all that, and here, uh, Faisal was the uh, guy who, under the son of Sharif Hussein, and here for the first time, you have the idea, we want to have an Arab state free of the Turks. Never existed before. And the British helped him because both sides, you know, the enemy I made, my friend, and so both sides had something in common, right? And so for the very first time, after Zionism has come fairly well established, and at the same time the Balfour Declaration will be issued, the British are playing a double game, and uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, who's British, is promising him that we're going to join the war against the Turks, and when we win, we'll give the whole Middle East as one big Medina under you, and so it won't be the Turkish Empire, but it'll be a nice size thing called the Arab Empire, the Arab State, which the original plan was that this guy who was a nice fellow, by the way, he was educated and all the rest of it, um, by the uh, Arab standards, he, uh, the, 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 this will be a, one country which will comprise all the Arab-speaking states. It's what we call today Saudi Arabia. This is before Saud kicked him out. You understand? What, what Saud did was kick out this guy and his family. Uh, so it'll be Saudi Arabia, it'll be uh, what we call Israel and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon, it'll be Iraq. That's, that's pretty big, agreed? And, uh, and everybody will be one big happy family. We know that, as I said before, the British, for their own imperialistic reasons, and the French, uh, these two guys who come afterward, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, behind the backs of the Arabs, they didn't plan to do that at all. Okay? No, they lied to them. That's what they call it, politics. Um, how many honest politicians do you know? Raise your hand. No, um, they, 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 but that, that's what happens. They were shafted by the, by the British and the French, which they've never gotten over. And it's 100 years have gone by. Right? This, I'm, I'm talking about 1915. Here we are about to enter the year 2014. Okay? So uh, instead of one big Arab state, which they promised them in the way I just described it, instead, um, the British and the French secretly planned and carried out, after the World War I was over, that they broke the Middle East up into a bunch of different states. Um, the Middle East that you and I are familiar with. What I'm trying to say is like this. The British and the French invented every single Arab state. They didn't exist once upon a time, and they do now. So let's take a look at the map in the middle. There was no such thing as Iraq. Now, we have learned this, unfortunately, in the United States with George Bush's war, and uh, all of a sudden they did, you know, after the poor GIs and Marines got stuck in the crossfire, right, turned out, oh, nobody said, this is the, this is the Kurds, 
and, and this is the Sunnis, and this is the Shiites, who are half hankering to join with Iran, but half not. I mean, nobody, nobody told me this, you see? Uh, when I was young, and you, Iraq was just another country. It's America, it's England, it's Ireland, it's Iraq. It's a country. No, it's not. It was invented by the British, who wanted to be sure, by the way, that this area, which is Kurds, should not belong to Turkey, God forbid, but should belong to Iraq, because that way is all the oil. You see? There was even a machlokas, and the League of Nations had to decide it, that it goes to Iraq, this area. And nobody asked the people over here if they want to be part of that. And you know and I know today the Kurds want to get out of there have their own country. Similarly, the French, this is part of the Sykes-Pig Agreement, a country was invented called Syria, the Mandate of Syria, which, as you know at this moment, is self-destructing because there really is no such country like that with those borders. And instead, you have a group called the Druze who would like to rule themselves. You have other groups called the Sunnis who would like to rule themselves and everybody else. You have groups like the Alawites and, I don't know, you know the, the Shiites have a certain area, and, and the other groups even I forgot. So the point is that um, they put it all... And the Christians, by the way. Uh, incidentally, the French are responsible for all the civil war that's going on in Syria today because when the French came in, they knew the majority is Sunnis. They don't want them there. The French army had to fight their way and conquer it because the Syrians wanted a big state under Faisal that I just described. You didn't want a giant Arab state uh, under King Faisal. And the, the French send an army in there, you know, and, and, and so forth. And they made sure there should be a Christian area there that'll be pro-French. And there'll be, they'll find, um, what shall I say, Shabtai Tzvi type Muslims who will be, you know, they're not exactly Muslim. They are, they aren't. And they will favor them against the regular Sunnis. These are the Alawites. So this is where Assad comes from. You get it? The French used these guys and made them the officer corps of the soldiers that they raised over there and created a new elite which have seized power and have held it since 1970, as you and I know, and that's why all the, all the killing is going on at this moment. All I'm trying to show you is that instead of having a situation which you had a clear nationalism, and then you had an independence movement, and eventually you had a certain revolutionary war, and eventually you got to where you want, it did not happen that way in the Middle East, and hence you have all the problems that you have uh, today. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons, not the only reason, was the British had only promised that the Jews will have something over here, something called Palestine. Originally, Palestine was supposed to be both of this, but when, when the Saw, Saudis kicked the uh, Faisal and his gang out of there, Faisal's brother was, was Abdullah. See? So King Hussein and now King Abdullah, that's why they call him Abdullah, right? Because they're the nephews, so to speak, of the Faisal family, and the British had to pay off a debt because they promised they would help him out, and they didn't give him everything, so well, at least we'll give you this. And, he had a, and King Faisal himself, he said, we'll give you this. Iraq was created to give something for Faisal. So these, these have to do with debts the British made, or felt they, they, they had, towards individual Arab princes. They have nothing to do with what the people want. So it sounds like we're back in Henry VIII's time. You know, the Earl of this gets this karka, and the Duke of this gets that piece of land. Yeah, there are people involved over here. And it's 100 years later, and the Middle East is still all screwed up as a result of this. Now, um, the Arabian Peninsula, by the way, had its own course of events where one of the Saudi uh, uh, leaders, uh, sheiks, uh, the Ibn Saud family, this guy, in other words, he killed out the Faisal guys. And he took over Wahhabis. Okay? We are paying the price of this today because the Wahhabi business, as you know, is the Al-Qaeda, it's Osama bin Laden, under different forms. It's the extreme form of, of the Islam. If you want to understand what I'm talking about, Look at me. Here's Faisal, 
on the, on the scale of extremism, and here's Ibn Saud. You know, this is the least extreme, and this is the most extreme. Faisal was good to Jews and good to Christians and all the rest. He believed in a tolerant Islam. Uh, Ibn Saud, the opposite. As soon as he took over, no non-Sunni Muslims allowed in Arabia and all that sort of thing. And the United States, because of the oil, has backed him. Uh, there's FDR, meeting with him on the way back from the Alta Conference, a very famous scene. And FDR said, I learned more about the true situation with Zionism in Palestine talking with Ibn Saud than for hundreds of hours talking with Stephen Wise. <laughs> you see? So you see where that's going. Of course, it really did. He found out about the oil. <laughs> he did learn more about it. And um, because of that, the U.S. has always uh, protected uh, Saudi Arabia, and there's been a plus and a minus. The plus is we got the oil, the minus is you got the, the, the 9-11. Okay? The, all the uh, Sunni, Sunni uh, terrorism which is the stuff we're all worried about right now, come from Saudi Arabia, directly or indirectly. But anyway, that's enough for that sermon. Onward. The, uh, all I can tell you is that's the one case where you don't have a secular state. Right? The other states, as we'll see in a minute, were, were, were set up uh, with the idea of being secular states. Egypt, again, is its own partial. Okay? Egypt was not directly under the Turkish Empire. It had, ha it had sort of broken away, as I told you, I think last week or two weeks ago, it, it had broken away in the 1800s under its own pasha, and they had their own dynasty, which was Muslim but wasn't under the Turks. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, when this guy was the, was in 1914, he was the official king or the the Khedive, which is a Turkish term, right? The, the kind of the ruler, um, officially under the Turks, but not really. Uh, the British, there's Lord Kitchener. Uh, he's just wearing a uniform, but he's a British. Okay. He's very, one of the most famous British soldiers and uh, Kitchener of Khartoum because he wiped out the Mahdi's army at the Battle of Omdurman near Khartoum and avenged the death of Gordon Pasha. <laughs> you understand? So they didn't take nothing off anybody. He's the king. He's the real boss. You know, so that, that's how it works. You know, he, he makes the decisions after he tells them what decision to make. <laughs> that's how it goes. This guy tried to make an Egyptian revolt against the British. Uh, it didn't work. Okay. This is Nasser before Nasser. He, you know, Arabi Pasha was, a, was an Egyptian colonel, a nationalist. He went Egyptian, Egypt for the Egyptian. You can't blame him. Uh, but the British came in and crushed him one, two, three. And so Egypt is seething with resentment against the British who are there, and you can't get rid of them because they occupy all the strategic positions of power. And so the, there we have the, the, the powder keg building up that is the Middle East. So my point is, as I said before, it was Britain and France who created the state system of the modern Middle East. Uh, now, of course, if you ask the Arabs, it's like this. Britain and France were tools of the Zionists. Okay. Um, the states, they set up, now pay close attention to this, were secular. Meaning, when, the, when they set up a country called Iraq, it had a constitution and a parliament, and it's supposed to be set up as a secular state. In other words, not like Saudi Arabia religious state. And when they did set it up in 1922 or 23, it really was. It's not the, it was not the Iraq of Saddam Hussein. Uh, when Faisal was the king there for 10, 12 years, it really was uh, uh, as close as you get to a, a parliamentary democracy. I noticed they had votes and uh, things like that. Uh, the Jews had it good. Uh, the Christians had it good. Uh, the different Muslim groups, the, the, the Sunnis and the Shiites were, were held in a, in a certain balance. You know, uh, you had a, 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 a semi-free press. Uh, it, it was what it was. Um, same thing for uh, Syria in its own way, and, uh, and that's how it went. When they became independent by 1945, because I can't go through all the history over here, but by the time the Second World War is over, um, Iraq became independent in the 30s, 
um, Syria became independent in, in the 40s. Same thing with Lebanon. Okay? And Jordan was basically independent. Uh, it's complicated also by that time. Uh, by this time, they were formerly modern secular states with equal rights for all religious groups. So I want you to understand that we've retrogressed. We haven't progressed. If you went back 60 years, 70 years in the Middle East, uh, with all the imperfections that are associated with democracies and struggling democracies, and we certainly do not lack imperfections, even in the good old USA, uh, they, they were, uh, as I said before, they had, they had votes, uh, they had uh, you know, elections, uh, they had a parliamentary system, uh, the kings were constitutional monarchs, the armies were not that big, you had a fairly free press, fairly free, um, you know, all those sorts of things. You, know, you, you, had, you had basic rights, rule of law. Um, it's not, I'm talking about Syria, I'm talking about Lebanon, I'm talking about Iraq, even Jordan, um, Egypt. Uh, think about that. Because that ain't where it's at today, as you know and I know. Uh, but that's the way it was then. All during the years of 1920 to, 40, to 1945, I repeat, in between the First World War and the Second, and the end of the Second World War, the Arab nationalist movement arose and struggled for independence, which they do attain thanks to World War II and to British policy. So as uh, the British Foreign Minister Anthony Eden, it was the British who set up something called the Arab League, which had the first conference over which he presided in 1945. His idea was, yes, there'll be independent states, independent states the way we want them to be, <laughs> okay? Uh, Pro-Western, uh, semi-democratic, uh, subject to British influence and all the rest of it. Naturally, the real Arab nationalists are seized with this. In Palestine, the situation for Arab nationalism totally screwed up. You see, the Arabs haven't gotten over this today, and I don't blame them from their point of view. It should have been that the British took over Palestine like they took over Jordan, and they took over Iraq, and they took over Egypt. And it should have been that uh, just as the nationalist movement formed uh, after, the second, after the First World War, little by little, in Iraq, and in Syria, and in Lebanon, and in Egypt, and in Jordan, all the other, same thing in Palestine, and eventually, just as in all the other countries, they got rid of the British and set up an Arab state, they should have set up an Arab state called Palestine, or, 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 or in, in some situation like that or other. But we know that it got messed up because of the Balfour Declaration. Turns out, <laughs> what kind of nationalism can you have to set up a state when the British are filling the country up with Jews? At least that's how they saw it. Now we, from our perspective, say the British didn't fill up with enough. And that's why six million got killed, because they wouldn't let them in. I understand that. But look at it from their point of view. They said this messes up the normal flow of the way revolutionary independence movement is supposed to go. We have a totally foreign group coming in, as they saw the Jews, and then the whole discussion is when are they going to set up a Jewish state, and nobody ever talks about setting up an Arab-Palestinian state, and if, if things don't change, we're, 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 our whole nationalism is, is going to be a thing that doesn't exist. Um, as it happens, everything they said was true, and it meant that the Arab-Palestinian, Palestinian, a nationalist movement, and even consciousness, is retarded, held back, as a result of the Jewish situation, and um, it comes to express itself under the most toxic of leaders, which is the, the Mufti of Jerusalem, was really a fascism. You get it? I mean, he wanted to set up a fascist state, and uh, I want you to understand, when the Mufti was around, uh, anybody who doesn't agree with him gets bumped off. That's not a healthy way to set up a nationalist movement. It is one way, but I can tell you right now, and I've spoken about it in the past, all it did was make all those Arabs that didn't agree with the Mufti get real angry at him, and every time my cousin or cousin's cousin gets bumped off, I'm going to help the Jews. So one of the things that the Zionists were able to do in the 30s and 40s 
was to get significant help from Arabs, from Arabs who were out to stick it back to the Mufti. If you're an Arab nationalist looking back today, you just tear your hair at this. You see, he says, no, we should have been united and all the rest of it. So it was a, all I can tell you is this was a godsend for the Zionist movement in the years 1918 and 1948. Do you see what I'm saying? This was a big plus for the Zionists. And although the Mufti shrewdly tried to make the cause of Palestine a pan-Arab cause, I would even say a pan-Islamic cause, he went around in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s to all these big conferences whenever you had all the Islamic things get together, which they had from Pakistan to, to, to Morocco. And whenever you have Arab conferences get together, which they had all over the Middle East, and he said, what about standing up and fighting for the Palestinian cause, all the rest of it, uh, it didn't quite happen, right? It didn't quite happen. Instead, they were mainly concerned with their own independence. You know, like the Syrians say, after we get ours, then we'll think about you. The Egyptians said the same thing, and so did the others. And so, uh, formally speaking, they got all these resolutions condemning the Zionists, this, that, and the other. But Lamaisa, as I showed you last week, for example, uh, there was a strong and active Zionist movement, Jewish, in, uh, in Egypt, in Iraq, believe it or not, even in Syria to some degree, uh, which is kind of funny, except that they were mentally focused on their own struggles and only tangentially focused on, on the others. Plus, it's also true that the British, by doing the white paper and things like this, got kind of tempted that this is precisely the reason the British had such a restrictionary policy. That's the reason on letting Jews in. Because they said, if we let a lot of Jews in, this might spread and become something like wildfire that will sweep the whole Arab world, the whole Islamic world. And, and the British were successful in that particular policy and never got much traction over there. But, uh, but it could have happened. Imagine if there would have been a jihad in 1948 instead of just Israel against a couple of, of, of small armies. Imagine if instead of the small Egyptian army, the small Jordanian army, was 5,000 men, Imagine the small Jordanian army, and we had our hands full with the small armies, right? Imagine if somebody would have come up like today and launched a fire from Indonesia to Morocco. Oh, my God. Now, there were small numbers, but very small numbers, of foreign Muslims who joined in the 48 war. You know that? Uh, believe it or not, there were some Croatian and Yugoslavian-type Muslims that, that fought the Haganah, there were a couple of people from Morocco and from Pakistan. These are the weirdos. In other words, they're they, very small. It's exceptional. For the same money, you could have gotten a mob. But it just things didn't come together, Baruch Hashem. And the result is that, they, uh, that we won. But it did, that's Lamaisa, only the Egyptian, only Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq fought in the 48 war. There was no Hezbollah, there was no Al Qaeda. Consider that. Why don't they launch a whole international movement like you have now to blow up everything in sight in the West and elsewhere in order to express their... None of that happened. Only with our perspective today, when we see the world really going to hell in a handbasket, do we say, wow, things were a lot better in the 40s and the 50s. And then we ask ourselves, where was all this potential gasoline that could have been you know, inflamed? And all you can say is, chaz Hashem. Part of the reason for this is precisely the fact that Israel did not, I repeat, did not, capture East Jerusalem. You couldn't get them all riled up if Jordan holds the Temple Mount, if Jordan holds uh, Hebron and places like that. You understand what I'm saying? The holy sites of Islam were not lost to the Jews in 48. Now, there's a bad side to that. There's a good side to that. Now I'm showing you the good side. And that is, you can't get the Muslims so riled up because Jerusalem, at least the part that counts, is in our hands. In, in, in Islamic hands. It's under uh, Jordan. 
and, uh, and, and similar areas. Oh, it's very bad that the Jews hold Haifa in Tel Aviv and they kick the Arabs out of Jaffa, but it ain't the same thing as Yerushalayim, Al-Quds, as you know. And uh, although the Palestinian refugee situation, because you had that, you know, between a half a million and a million Palestinians got, became refugees and kicked out of home, elicits sympathy throughout the Islamic world. It didn't generate passion. did not generate passion. Remember, there was no CNN, there was no Al Jazeera, and all that kind of stuff. There was no YouTube. It makes a big difference because you just heard about it if you're in the Islamic world. Just heard about it in the Arabic world. Seeing, hearing, not the same thing as seeing. And therefore, for whatever reason, they don't, the, the giant continues to sleep, as we would put it today. So instead of a Jewish-Islamic conflict, I repeat, a Jewish versus Islamic conflict, which is, which is what has become today, you had an Arab-Israeli conflict, which means you're defining the conflict in secular nationalistic terms. And this was a plus for Israel. Um, Israel, for example, in 1950, established diplomatic relations with Turkey and with Iran. These are two Muslim countries. Why? Because neither the Turks at that time, nor the Iranians, believe it or not, in the time of the Shah, saw the Arab-Israeli conflict as no gay to them. Why? They're Muslims. Aren't they worried about the Jews taking over peace in the Middle East? That's an Arab problem. We're not Arabs. You know what I'm saying? Right now, this son of a gun, Erdogan, is trying to make Turkey more Islamic, and he would like to revive the Ottoman Empire and all that junk, and so he's trying to press the, the Islam button. But until recently, you know like I know, uh, Turkey and Israel had very good relations. Actually, they were pretty cozy, right? In the intelligence gathering area, in the arms area, and all the rest of it. How can that be? Turkey's an Islamic country. Because at that time, the posture the Turks had was, we're a secular state, Islam may or may be out there. Turkish state has always had its problematic relations with, with Islam anyway, thank God. And um, uh, it's an Arab problem, and we don't like the Arabs either. <laughs> right? Same thing with Iran and under the Shah. We don't like the Arabs either. They, they feel more comfortable with the Jewish state than they do with the Arab states. This is the way it goes. I'm simply showing you this to see that it didn't, the conflict did not have religious dimensions so much as it had secular national dimensions. In addition, not having a a dynamic Muslim component, the Arab states themselves lack a dynamic, genuine, and inspiring political leadership. On the contrary, the leaders are all hated. Leaders are all fools. Uh, I mean, how are you going to get passionate over King Farouk, that famous uh, playboy? You understand? How are you going to get passionate over King uh, Abdullah, who's always scheming you know, to try to conquer Syria or something like that? Uh, Nuri Pasha, just look at him. The, uh, <laughs> there was no... There was, there was no there was nobody, I'll use American terms, even though I shouldn't do it, since this is the art side, so I said, there's no JFK. Um, and uh, that's very important for Israel. In fact, it's one of the big pluses for Israel, look back, because Israel at least has a, uh, a pretty doggone, um, what shall I say, uh, uh, dynamic leadership. Um, they weren't perfect, all the rest of it, but uh, look at these three guys and compare, you know, Ben Gordon was a dynamic leader. Compare him to him. He's spending all of his time at parties and uh, with his girlfriends and all that. He's not. He's not. Right? They're, they're, they're working 24-7 and building a state. Uh, in his day, you could like them or dislike them. They were dynamic leaders. You understand? They, they said, you know, they're moving things forward. And I'm oh, sure there was controversies, but that's part of moving forward. Um, the Arab world lacked, as it does today, anything of an inspiring leadership. I mean, thank God. But just, just consider yourself. Go through the Arab world right now mentally and look at who the leadership is. Oh, what a bunch of losers. Baruch Hashem. 
Because we get a dynamic leisha, would be bad news. You see? Now, um, I'm going somewhere with this, as you'll see. Uh, <laughs> Ben-Gurion actually, very often to the, to the general, said he's terrified. Where He said, right now we got a good. I'm afraid the Arabs shouldn't have another Kemal Pasha. There's the founder of Turkey. He was the great Muslim general in the World War I. Remember, the British landed at the Dardanelles, and he beat the heck out of them, didn't he? Uh, he was a, and he eventually chased the, the Greeks and the French and all the others out of Turkey and set up modern Turkey, meaning he was a modernizing, tough, dynamic leader who had the, the great the qualities of leadership. Oh, to, 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 for Ben-Gurion's generation, this is what they're scared of. There shouldn't arise a Kemal Pasha. You understand that? Because Ben-Gurion remembered the First World War. Uh, as long as the Arabs just have a bunch of boobs, you know, Abdullah, uh, you know, Hussein, even when he was a kid, and these other ones, you know, nobody even can even remember who was the head of Syria or these other places, uh, then, then it's good. And, and he's right about that. Now, um, <clears throat> it was this uh, fear, by the way, that the Arabs tomorrow, not today, but tomorrow, the day after, might get a dynamic leader. It is this fear that drives the priority that Ben-Gurion puts into the military, which is actually the hallmark of the Ben-Gurion era. Uh, in his time, he didn't wear the uniform for fun. Oh, of course, he wasn't in the army. Wear a uniform always to emphasize the militarization of the state. And by that, he, mean, he said many speeches about this. He says, with us, uh, security means the life of every woman and child. And so we have to uh, keep our qualitative superiority. We have to keep our military edge. I told you before that Israel in these years had bigger army than any Arab state. Actually, it's bigger than, than all put together, believe it or not, in the early 50s. Bigger than all put together. And uh, they had better equipment, and uh, even though it was primitive still, and things like that. And they spent a lot of money on the training, the setting up the infrastructure for an army and an air force, and, and all that sort of thing, uh, because we want, we're ahead and we want to keep ahead. And Ben-Gurion was the type of person who said, I guess we don't want to fall asleep and let them catch up with us. We've got to keep pushing forward, 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 forward. Uh, there were big arguments in Israel over how to spend the money, but there was a general consensus that you know, the national security threat comes first, all I can tell you is Israel spent a lot of money in those years to keep the army forward, and they have done so ad hayom hazeh. At the end of the day, the only thing, if you're looking at it from the point of view of al pider ha-teva, the only thing that kept the Arabs away is Israel, they're afraid of Israel's army. Man, that, that, that's what it boils down to. If, if you cancel that out, we're in big trouble. And so they've had, as we all know, I mean, we give money to Israel. One of the reasons you do is they need the money for all those weapons. He said, why, why do you need all the weapons for it? He said, what do you mean? Where are you living? In the Middle East? It's not the Midwest, it's the Mideast. You understand? So it, it, it's that kind of a neighborhood. So we know all this sort of thing. Now, the story begins in Egypt, in, uh, in, in, in the, right after the 48 war. A lot of frustration built up in Egypt in the wake of the Egyptian defeat in the 48 war. Uh, because Egypt went into the war against Israel with no preparation whatsoever, um, with, with, with a lot of corruption in the supply process. The soldiers didn't have enough shoes, they didn't have enough bullets and all this sort of business, which made the soldiers, especially the, the, the officer corps, really angry. I mean, either don't go into war, or if you go in, then do it right. And it's true, because I explained last year, two years ago, Egypt was not planning to go into the 48 war, and then King Farouk just decided we're going to do it. And so the army was handed, the Egyptian army was handed a tough task, and to be perfectly honest, they fought pretty well, considering that they weren't so prepared. In the end, though, Israel... By the time it was over, they would make an end run around them, you know, under Giga alone, and the Egyptian army was going to be destroyed if, if Truman hadn't stopped them. So this is very uh, frustrating if you're an Egyptian uh, soldier. 
And so the result was they said, look how corrupt the army is, um, the government is, and all this sort of thing. And it makes the soul, the officer corps, the, the captains, the colonels, and all that, say, we want to make a, a revolution, a coup d'etat. And they do so in July of 52. Right? When they overthrow the monarchy, uh, it is bloodless. They, you know, they don't kill the king, they put him on a ship and say, go spend your money in the Riviera, which he does. And, and they did that. And they say, we're taking over. The, the, the main soldier was uh, General Nagib. The second was Nasser over here, we'll talk about in a second. Um, you'll see that their idea was we want to end the corrupt regime. It was a corrupt regime. Okay? We want to put the country in a road of progress. It was not in a road of progress. I mean, a lot of what they said was true. The question then became, and this is very interesting, and again, totally affects the history of Israel and affects the history of the world, Ad Hayom Azeh, literally. And that is, once they seized power, and by the way, it didn't, wasn't so hard to seize power. They just took control of the radio station, the government ministries, and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't, wasn't like the Russian Revolution or anything like that. It was pretty bloodless. The, the, the soldiers listened to the officers, and they, they, they seized control, and the king, whose uh, corrupt regime was tottering, just left. And so the question becomes like this. Okay, uh, the wicked witch is dead, now what do we do? The ogre is gone. Now, they said, officially, they want to bring in a democracy. Well, you had a democracy already. Well, we want to bring a real democracy. i got no problem with that. So you want to clean up the political system a little bit? Is that what you want to do? You want to make the voting a little more transparent? I mean, is that what you want to do? Uh, my friends, these guys, when, when push came to shove, turned out not to be Thomas Jefferson, not to be Benjamin Franklin. You understand? They didn't say, now we've got the power, let's bring in the thing. Instead, they said like this, you know, tastes good. You know? Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll leave power tomorrow. Or the day after tomorrow. You ever hear any politicians talk like that? The bottom line is, they, they, what they ended up doing was introducing something that, although they didn't call it that, but what it boiled down to is a military dictatorship. Okay? Uh, not a democracy. And, uh, and they've never um, turned on that until very recently, when they had the elections for Morrissey, but then that got all bad. And now they're back to the good old military dictatorship. You understand? But the, the, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you want to understand the whole development of modern Egypt in the last 60 years in its confrontation with Israel. Now, of course, this won't be a bad dictatorship. This will be a good dictatorship. Have you ever heard that one before? Now, to be perfectly honest, in history, there are differences like that. Let, let, let's be fair about it. There are bad dictatorships. I'll give you an example. Uh, Nasser was not the same thing as Idi Amin. Right? So, uh, he's a very famous good dictator, right? He took over Rome. He killed everybody to get there, but he took over Rome to help Rome, help the people. Napoleon, remember Napoleon said, I'm taking over as dictator France because the crown lies in the, in the gutter and it's being dirty and nobody picks it up, so the people picked it up and put it on my head. Now he seized power. And Hitler also is a classic example. Me, for my own power? No, I'm doing it for the German people to help and, and make things better. You understand? So, you have that model of, quote-unquote, what they call the good dictatorship. Within a short time, uh, the head guy, Nagib, General Nagib, was pushed aside, and Gamal Abdel Nasser emerges as the boss. And he will dominate uh, the Middle East for uh, eight, almost two decades uh, when he died. And he was about 30 years old at this time. And he died, he was only 51 or 52, he died of diabetes, in a heart attack. So uh, he had a, a brief, relatively stormy career. He scared the heck out of Israel. Anybody's old enough as I am, will remember the Nasser era over here, and there's reasons for it. Um, Nasser is unique, a very unique in the Arab world. In fact, I would say he's unique in, the, in, in all Arab history, in the modern history in the 20th century. Um, Nasser 
was uh, an interesting guy. His father was a, a bureaucrat. Uh, you know, he grew up in a very nationalistic guy, but he had a he had a, a, a fairly decent education. Um, he is um, by by Islamic terms, by Middle Eastern terms, he's in the middle. He's anti-Muslim Brotherhood and he's anti-communism. So the U.S. liked him from day one. You understand? I'm talking about in '52. Uh, Truman knew all about it because because they, they come so they they went to the American ambassador and said, "Can we make a coup? <laughs> we'll be okay with you." And uh, Truman's about, you know, the State Department, Atchison, they say, okay, you know, get rid of the king, you're anti-communist, make sure about that, yeah, all the rest of it. Um, now, the Muslim Brotherhood, another word for which is Al-Qaeda, another word for which is Hamas, I don't know if you know this or not, they're just other, they're all members of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's Egyptian. It was founded by Hassan al-Ban in Egypt in the 1920s, and the idea was that there should become, he knew that he doesn't have the power to overthrow the Farouk regime, but he'll do it little by little in the same way that they tried now with Morsi. He spread do shiurim and kirov programs among the masses, work to have social welfare programs, you know what I mean, to, to, to help out, sort of like Lubavitch, you know, you know do, do a lot of uh, uh, chesed type things like that, and you build up a lot of followers, and one day we'll translate it to seize your political power, or attainment of political power if you wish. So the, I'm just trying to show you, the Muslim brother have been around since the 20s, it was a big factor in the 30s and the 40s. Um, they assassinated a couple of, of uh, prime ministers under Farouk. After the, uh, after the uh, Israel War of 48, uh, they made like a little bit more of a power play, and Farouk bumped off Hassan al-Banna, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. So things were pretty lively in Egypt, in the, in the Egyptian political system. And um, when the colonels, which is who Nasser represented, the army officers, take over... Um, they're religious Muslims, as we'll see. Uh, modern Orthodox, I think we would call it today. But they were Orthodox. And, you know, they prayed every day. Uh, they followed the rules of Islam, 100%. 100%. And you'll, I'm going to show you in a few minutes. It's going to be funny. He says, but they, and, and they thought the Muslim Brotherhoods are religious fanatics. They, they're against them. But they're also anti-communist. Because they're believers in communism is Marxism, which is atheist, among other things. And so the U.S. liked it. As a result, the CIA, uh, from the very beginning, moves into Egypt and shows Nasser how to set up an efficient police state. Isn't that nice? They say, oh, here's how you, here's how you bug all the offices. Uh, oh, yeah, my General Smith and Alan Dulles, they send in these teams. Uh, you know, like I know, the, 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 did the CIA help Saddam Hussein, remember, a couple years ago? That they're always throwing that in our faces. It's not untrue. So we helped set up Nasser. So you want to have a police state as long as it's going to be they're going to have military dictatorship. It's anti-communist, right? Okay, okay, fine. As long as it's anti-communist, here's how you uh, uh, make sure they have a central police system that they keep track of all the people. Here's how you set up a, a, a censorship system, because Nasser didn't know. So it's nice to know that we helped create this uh, monster. Uh, the CIA has big plans for, for, for uh, Gamal Nasser, right? Uh, Kim Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, son, was, was a big CIA guy in the Middle East. And uh, he's all, we're going to turn Egypt into a bastion of anti-communism, we're going to build you up. And uh, like I say, to help create a monster. Um, I repeat, Nasser was a from Muslim, but his ichor is not, his main thing is not Islamism, but Arab nationalism. That's the drummer he marches to. Okay? I'll repeat, he was a Muslim, he liked all the Islamic stuff, he thought all the Muslims should be together and all the rest of it, but what really moves him is the, is the Arab nationalism. He's full of resentment against the British and the French, he wants to liberate the Arabs from European colonialism. He is not intent to set up an Islamic empire. See, so this is who he hates. You know, the face of England, 
the, the British Empire, the, the British still had troops occupying Egypt in 1952 when Nasser ceases control. Farouk wanted to get rid of them. The Waft Party, which was the uh, dominant party uh, under Farouk, they were constantly doing all kinds of things to get, the, get rid of the British. They never quite succeeded. So if you're Egyptian, and you and I can totally understand this, you're Egyptian, every time you see a British flag flying in an office somewhere in Egypt, Krichzich and the Bainer, you know what I mean? You know, it really gets it. It was totally understandable. Nasser emerges out of all that. As I said before, he was modern Orthodox, but uh, he's opposed by the brother. Now I'm going to show you a short piece over here. I want you to pay close attention uh, because the subtitles are above and not below, and they're not in white, they're like in a different color. But you'll see, I'm going to set it up for you. It's really cool because it sounds like something in the firm world. And this is Nasser talking to a crowd, and what he's trying to say is like this. I tried to talk to the Muslim brother and see if they want to cooperate with me, but they said, first your wife has to wear a shaitol, your daughter has to wear a shaitol, or rather the Muslim the hijab, or something like that, one of the tarkha, I think he calls it, you know, the Muslim headgear. He says, I don't want to go back to the Middle Ages, you know, and, but they said not. But you'll see the crowd, especially women, are all cheering Nasser. He, was, he had that kind of rapport with the crowds, and he spoke what, they, what many of them wanted to feel, which is they wanted to be from, but not Meshuggah from. You understand? And that's an essence, and that's an essence of who, of, no, that's an essence of his appeal, okay? And, uh, and he's, he's laughing in the middle and all that. So you, you, you'll, you'll catch why he was such a uh, powerful and dangerous person. <laughs> let, him, let the men wear the scarf. We'll go back to the Middle Ages. Nasser's daughter's not wearing the scarf. You understand that how, how attractive he was? You understand? You see the charisma? Uh, this guy, you're on his side, except he wants to wipe out Israel. <laughs> Other than that, he's a great guy, you know? This, this, this was the problem, right? But, I'm, but, but I think it reveals uh, what I'm talking about, which is many in Egypt, right? Uh, looked him at the voice of sanity in the religious area and in, and in other areas. And the main thing he said, we're not worried about anybody wearing a, a shako or something like that. We're worried about k- kicking the British out. He said, liberating Egypt from the foreign influences and, and things of that nature. Um, and so, uh, because of this, the Muslim Brotherhood tries to assassinate him. They tried a couple of times and, as, and they failed. As a result, Nasser became their worst nightmare. Okay? Here's the head of the Muslim brother. He is the, uh, the, the, the saint, the god of Al-Qaeda and Hamas. He's Said Katub. He's, he's the guy who started the whole idea of uh, the, the Muslim terrorism and the extreme Islam. He's the Rebbe, so to speak, if you want, of, um, of Osama bin Laden and the guy now Zaharawi and, and all that. I mean, they looked him and God. He was hanged by Nasser. <laughs> okay? As a matter of fact, uh, I can tell you right now, uh, he became the worst nightmare. Nasser uh, killed and tortured and imprisoned like hundreds of thousands of these guys. So uh, actually, looking back in history, it's like this. He did this real big favor. Who, who knew? You understand? When we were living there, when, 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 when I was growing up, used to read in the, in the Time magazine, I said, oh, Nasser runs a police state. It's a concentration camp. He's murdering people. All of which is true. I just didn't know he's murdering the right people. <laughs> you understand? Because if, they, because if you let them alone... As Sadat later on did, 
they grow like a cancer. And they try to take over and they kill Sadat and all the rest of it. So a, a, a great deal of the attention of the Nasser regime from 1953, 54, down to his death in 1917, a lot of the attention was internal suppression of what he called the Ikhwan, of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood, who were always trying to penetrate into the army, into the secret service, into the police, into the government, is what they do. So there's a constant battle going on. And I said before, who knew? You know, when we were looking at this, we're always concentrating on the Nasser who's out to get Israel, which is also the case. But at the same time, he was fighting another one over there. You have to, to, to understand that, uh, I mean, really, from a from perspective, you can say, You know that famous thing you see in the Haggadah Pesach? There's a famous teaching, means from their own hands, they, they, you know, they, they, they provide the Yeshua over here. All the leaders of Egypt. Let's go back. Uh, uh, do we have the one with, with, yeah, with yeah, there. All the leaders of Egypt. Nasser, then Sadat, then Mubarak. Forget this guy. Now this guy. No, I'll see what I mean. The, the Egyptian uh, revolutionary government, which is still in power at this moment. It's been since 1952. This guy, when he died, he's followed by this guy. When he was killed, he followed by this guy. Then, of course, you know, he was overthrown, but now it's back to business, okay? Uh, they've all had the, the, the posture of being violently opposed to and being violently opposed by the Muslim Brotherhood. That's what the Egyptian government has always been. Now, when Mubarak was overthrown, they had the revolution, he came, he's the, he's the Muslim Brotherhood. You see, that lasted a short time, the army reasserted itself. No, no, no. I'm just trying to show you the background of, of Egyptian politics, which is the next-door neighbor of Israel. Everything I'm talking about profoundly affects Israel. When he was in power, they're giving the, the, the guns to Hamas in, in the Gaza Strip. You know, I know you read the papers with the tunnels. With this guy, they closed it all down. Not because he loves Israel, he doesn't, but because who is Hamas? Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood. You get what I'm saying? Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood. It's the Palestinian version of it. You don't get fooled by the, by the names. And so the result is that the uh, stance of the Egyptian government, the most powerful Arab country, is of decided importance to, to the state of Israel. And believe me, the army and the intelligence are constantly watching every little thing that happens in Egypt all the time because we have to. And it goes back to Nasser's time when these guys said, I guess, we want to be the dictators and the rulers of Egypt. And we want to have, as I said before, modern Orthodox. We don't want to have Meshuggah if the Muslim brother takes over, they're going to try naturally to, 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 to displace all the others and put their own guys in, and, uh, and it'll be just terrible. The Muslim brothers are like this. This is a group of, uh, of uh, non-from Muslims, whatever they say about themselves, and the fact they want to hold back the takeover of Muslim brothers show that they're all Bali Avera, and they'll have to be rubbed out. You know? And that, in a nutshell, is Egyptian politics in the second half of the 20th century. But I'll say it again. It's funny that all these guys have sat on or are sitting on at this moment uh, people who, if they get out of the way, will go after Israel full, full throat. You know that. So none of these people are tzaddikim, but politics makes strange bedfellows, does it not? Now, um, Nasser, as I think you've caught from that little piece I showed you, isn't Stam a dictator. He had big plans. First of all, anti-colonialism, which is totally popular in Egypt and the rest of the Arab world. Why not? <laughs> in this, he's totally successful. In the years 52 to 56, that's when he attains his great success. He gets the British out of Egypt in 54. He's negotiated. The British should leave voluntarily from Egypt in 54. And eventually, as we will see in this series, he kicks him out of the Suez Canal in 56. These achievements enshrine him permanently in the Arab pantheon. You have to understand. 
Which for the, if I was an Arab, I'd feel the same way. He says, as far as the Arabs are concerned, this guy did godless, things that cannot be taken away. It used to be that we were under the thumb and the control of the European and colonials. And Nasser is the guy who got rid of them. Whatever you hold about religious views, all the rest of it, you can never take this away from him. And that's why he's a unique figure in the Arab culture on Hayom Azeh. He's just dead. But he's a unique figure in the Arab culture until today. Here's, let's see the next one. There's, he, he negotiated with Anthony Eden in 54, and they did sign a treaty. If you remember, I told you two weeks ago, Israel was so freaked out over this that they did the Lavon affair, remember? That's exactly why, why Israel did it, because they said, uh-oh, if, they, if Britain will get out, it won't be good for Israel, so let's blow up in some place in Egypt so the British will still stay and all the rest of it. But that didn't work, did it? And so Nasser was uh, totally successful here. Secondly, Nasser was also committed to Egypt for the Egyptians, which again was totally popular in the country. Uh, King Farouk is Albanian, actually. His great-great-great-grandfather, Mehmed Ali, was an Albanian uh, soldier who seized power in Egypt and who brought in all kind of non-Egyptians to form the top ruling group in Egypt. So all the pashas and all the big shots in Egypt, the landowners and the guys who controlled the capitalism and this and that and the other, none of them were really Egyptian, hardly any of them. They came from Albania, from Greece, from uh, Turkey, some of them, from Circassia, you know, which is all the way out in the, near, near the Caucasus. And uh, what they all had in common was, <laughs> we're not Egyptians, therefore let's stick it to the Egyptians, right? who will form the, the lower classes by and large. Um, the, the, these guys were the upper classes uh, with, with all the ownership, and Nasser started a policy of just nationalizing everything. I mean, it was revolutionary. They took all the, you know, 51% goes to the state. You know, we control every business. And so, in other words, he kicked out an entire group, which was revolutionary. And it was totally popular with the Egyptian people, because what they said is, now the country's institutions, the country's land, and all that sort of thing, resources, belong to Egyptian people. Now, if this was a wise policy from the purely economic point of view or not, that's a separate discussion that maybe I'll talk about a little bit later. But you can totally understand that a person ordinarily doesn't like the fact that all the wealth of the country is controlled by people who aren't from your own group. So um, I'll say again, they nationalized everything. You see, that's, it's a hallmark of the, of the Nasser, Nasser program. Um, Nasser was anti-capitalist in the way I just described. That, uh, and he said so. It's one of the big uh, slogans. We want to nationalize everything and break up the rich millionaires who, who make money in Egypt and spent it in Monte Carlo, as he put it, which was true. All this was, was, was not incorrect at all. And they put land reform for the peasants. So instead of all these people, the, 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 uh, the wealthy class just dispossessed, and the peasants are given their own land. I mean, naturally, he was like a god to the Egyptians because he delivered. Right? He just wasn't talk. He delivered. Uh, he's imposed in principle to what he calls Arab reactionaries. Just I showed you before. He's against the people with the, with the hijab and all that sort of thing. This spread across into Islam altogether. Um, I'll tell you an example. The best example what I'm talking about is that once he got his radio working and he was able to broadcast so popularly to all the Arab world, one of, one of the themes, not the only one of the themes, was against the right-wing Arab reactionary countries like Saudi Arabia. He's the one who said, hey, there's still slavery officially on the law in Saudi Arabia, which was true in the 1950s and 60s. You, you hear what I said? At the same time, FDR was kissing up to Ibn Saud. Uh, he has slaves, okay? Now, I thought this country isn't to Abraham Lincoln and that sort of thing. But they turned it aside when it came to Saudi Arabia. Nasser, as an Arab, right? he said, it just bothers me that we're so backwards in some part of the Arab world and so corrupt that you still have human slavery. Okay? And, and, and um, by the way, 
Here is the slave trade roots in the Middle East. This is just interesting to know. You hear sometimes they say, oh, Jews were part of the slave trade. And some were, but the Jews were like a percent. The Arabs were like 80% or 90% of the slave trade. And look where they do it. These, look, I just want to show you this. Uh, here, every uh, um, summer or every winter, I forget, from Morocco, they went huge expeditions to go into here to round up slaves. I mean, that's what they were, giant slave-catching expedition, expeditions that they round up a zillion people, bring them back up here, and they become slaves. Either they sell them elsewhere or, or whatever. Here, from Egypt, they used to send down here to catch the slaves, and they would sell them to Arabia and back to Egypt, and the whole area was one gigantic business of the slaves. Um, I read last year, I just didn't, didn't have the book with me, I wish I did, from Bernard Lewis, right? his autobiography recently came out. He's the famous Orientalist, as they call it in the, uh, in, in the great universities, a Jewish guy. And uh, he said, I remember like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, something like that, he was at some conference in Spain, and he met this famous American guy, a professor, uh, African-American, um, African-American American professor, uh, was, uh, who was a Bucky in slavery or something like that, and he asked him, uh, maybe the guy's name was Abdul or something like that, I'm going by memory, and he said, why do you have Maz um, Wire, such names, uh, popular in the black community? He said, we don't want to have the, the names of those who, who enslaved us. He says, well, so Bernard Lewis says, then why do you want to have the names of the people who sold you to the people who enslaved you? He said, why, why is the Muslim, if you tell me they want to go back to the ancient African religion, I get it. If you tell me they're against the Christian religion because of the slave religion, I get that too. Why do you want to be Muslim? He said, they're, they're the ones who started the whole slavery business in the first place. But life is not like that. Anyway, the fact is, the fact is that uh, Nasser uh, 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 pestered him so much until Saudi Arabia abolished slavery. That didn't him really do it, but at least on the books. And why did he care? His idea was you Arabs have to be progressive. You see? And so I think you started to get an idea why he attained such a wide popularity. Social welfare. He's the first Arab uh, ruler everywhere to start a social welfare program with social security and unemployment insurance and that sort of thing that you pick up from the West. His, uh, he, his Achilles heel, again, Baruch Hashem, his Achilles heel was, he was like all these leaders who arose after the Second World War, including Israel, committed to socialism. They thought that's the wave of the future. And because they made a socialist economy, Egypt has been economically retarded in a profound way ever since then, which is great for Israel. If you had a powerful, strong, capitalist, uh, wealthy uh, Egypt, Israel would be in, in deep trouble. You understand? But in the contrary, you know and I know, they depend on money from America all the time. They depend on money from elsewhere. They can't make the economy work. But Nasser, everybody understood, meant well. Uh, the trouble is that, as with socialism, uh, he, he just made the proclamation that people had to figure out how to do it. Uh, he promised a job for everybody. Uh, there's a law in Egypt till today, uh, which is an interesting law. If you graduate college, you're guaranteed a job. If you can't get a job in the private sector, they'll give you a job with the government. I mean it. And so the result is you have a gigantic bloated bureaucracy. That's an understatement. Okay? And uh, it's, it's got, once you have that level of bureaucracy, it's inevitably corrupt at a profound level. Just, you know, think about it. It's common sense. And... Uh, in addition to that, Egypt was always at a baby boom. In Nasser's time, the population was like 20 million. Today's 85 million. Okay? And when you put that all together, it's a highly dysfunctional situation, which is why Morsi couldn't solve anything good. Why was he unpopular? Because the Muslim brothers said, when we take over, we'll make everything good. But you can't. You understand? You don't have the infrastructure to make everything good. And so they're always one week away from starvation. And all this has been a plus for Israel, who they wanted to wipe out, and they still do, 
But uh, this is the way it goes. This, this is always kept Egypt in economic basket case. And finally, uh, Nasser personally was a modest person, and he was not corrupt. And this is absolutely unique in the Arab world. Okay? He didn't, he, all these other guys, you know this. I know you, you wouldn't be here if you weren't intelligent. So you know that all these guys keep all the money in the Swiss bank accounts. I know you follow this, right? And I, when I say money in the bank accounts, I'll give you this one example that everybody's totally familiar with. How much did Arafat die with in the bank accounts? Yeah? Billions, right? His wife is fighting, you know, where's the money? You know, billions. Uh, where was that money supposed to go? You get it? Uh, Assad, Saddam Hussein. I mean, you name it. Gaddafi. You know, they're, they're, that's how it goes over there. You understand? You give a foreign aid, $99 goes into my back pocket, and $1, and that's already considered a madrega because some guys keep 100, 100% of it. I'm giving 1% away, you know? Nasser didn't take any money. He lived in a regular house. Okay. So it's sad because he could have worked it out with Israel. It would have been a different story. But he was, at the same time, today, all these personal virtues. He was committed, as you know, to the destruction of Israel, as, as, as we'll see, although that's a very, very, very complicated story. But for the reason I just described, wherever you went in the Middle East, in his time, uh, there were pictures in the, you know, like, like you go in the Machina Yehuda, you still see pictures of Begin. So you see, when everyone, all the, 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 the Machina Yehudas of the Arab world, so to speak, the Shuk and the Bazaar, wherever they were, from one end of the Arab world, you don't see pictures of Nasser. You don't see no pictures of Saddam Hussein, <laughs> right? You don't see pictures of uh, Morsi. But you always see pictures of Nasser, because they say, why can't others be like him, even though everybody knows he was far from perfect? Okay, as you see, uh, he, could, he was a popular speaker who could certainly heat up the crowds by appearing to Arab sensibilities, and uh, the CIA gave him a bribe of millions of dollars. Kim Roosevelt came and gave him, I forget what, five, ten million bucks. Just, that's how the CIA operates, you understand? So uh, they gave him a million dollars. Instead of putting it in a Swiss bank account, he built a gigantic radio tower and broadcast to the Arab world. He had a bigger radio tower than anybody else in those days. And that makes it unbelievably popular among the masses because he could get his message. As you see, by the way, from the little bit I showed you, you see he was a great speaker, obviously in Arabic, but you see the rapport he had with the crowds and all that. And when he speaks, and I don't know Arabic, but I understand enough that when you see always our pride and our dignity and our this and our that and the other, and that the, the downtrodden shouldn't be downtrodden and, and so forth, it's, it heats him up. In other words, they're inspired by all this, and that's what made him uh, something, as they say before, I mean, you don't have pictures of these guys uh, in, a, in, in any house in the Arab world, or anything, unless he, would, unless he forced you to, because they all have a zillion dollars in the Swiss bank accounts and are totally corrupt. So it's, it's, it's just a different uh, kind of an image. As a result, Nasser retained a unique authority in the Arab world and a unique charisma, and he freaked out all the other Arab rulers, because they're always afraid then Nasser will overthrow them, which he was trying to do. Okay? But the way he tried to do it was very simple. All the local officers in Jordan and the army officers in Syria and Iraq and all these other places, they're inspired by Nasser the same way I just described to you. And they say, look, let's uh, overthrow our government and join up with Nasser or be little Nasser's or something like that. And the result was that um, the other Arab rulers went on a total defense posture. They shouldn't be knocked out by Nasser. And uh, King Hussein, when he was young, the two leaders, believe it or not, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is why the politics of the 50s and the 60s, which is what I'm talking about, was one in which the most strange bedfellows uh, lie there. Look at King Hussein. You know how many times Nasser guys tried to assassinate him? Like 20, 30? Uh, the best one I remember is, they put the, look what I'm doing, they put the poison in his, 
don't know how they did it. They got the poison in his nose drops. So he was going to go like this and be, go out there, it's acid. And then for his luck, you know, before he did it, he took off his contact lenses and some of it dropped in the sink and it burned a hole in the sink. <laughs> you understand? This, this is, so King Hussein, which is why he, when, when Hussein was still young in 1962 or three, he already wrote his autobiography after what he's been in. Look, 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 what, look at the title. <laughs> Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, Shakespeare said in Henry IV, did he not? And uh, that's why is it uneasy? Because this son of a gun, Nasser, is always trying to knock me out. And already that time, Hussein is complaining in print. How come the Israelis never try to kill me? <laughs> and then he says, how come? And he wrote, I remember he wrote in this autobiography, he says, one time I was flying my plane because he flew his own plane, and the Syrian uh, jets tried to shoot him down under Nasser's orders, and I flew into Israeli airspace, I was safe. You understand? Which, which goes to show you the crazy politics of the 60s and, uh, 50s and 60s. And as a result, let's go to the next one. As a result, you had the, the funniest relationships going on because the enemy made my friend. Issa Harrell, who was Ben-Gurion's uh, spy chief, was actually meeting with Saudi Arabian head of, uh, of, of the intelligence. The other is to join up the fight against Nasser in different ways. And you know how much the Saudis hate the, the, the Israelis. Okay? But, you know, nothing trumps politics when it comes to the politics of survival. Um, okay, now what about Israel? What about the Jews and all of this? When the revolution began in 52, Ben-Gurion gave a famous speech. We publicly welcomed, and he said, oh, these guys are progressive, they're going to build a new Egypt, hopefully build a new Arab world, and starry-eyed idealism at that time, he says, and now you'll have a democratic Arab world hooked up with the democratic Jewish world, and we'll all have a happy Middle East, we'll all live happily ever after. We can be one big Switzerland and all the rest of it. Um, well, Nasser and Nagib naturally back to Palestinians. But they don't talk about wiping out Israel because at this period, Nasser was very interested in keeping the CIA on his side. He, wanted, he, he liked the fact that he had international legitimacy. All the Western press spoke about him in a high fashion. And uh, they're very anxious, actually, in the early years of Egypt to show their, that they're not anti-Semitic. And so you have all these scenes. Let's go to the next one, where General Nagib visits the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, there's the chief rabbi of Egypt, there's Chaim Nahum, very interesting guy. He uh, was the, uh, he had been the chief rabbi of Turkish Emba, Chacham Bashi. Um, he was a Talmud Chacham, but he also had a doctorate from French universities. He had went to Allianz schools. Most unusual person, he knew like 20 languages. And he made his business to, to, to get along and be um, respected by the Turks and later as the chief rabbi of Egypt for 30 years. He was the boss of Avadi Yosef when he was, uh, when Avadi Yosef was like a Dayan in Egypt. And you can tell already, he knows his way around the European uh, culture and all that sort of thing. And by this time he was blind, Nachum Effendi. And, uh, but still, he's a fixture in Egypt. And uh, as they say, uh, General Nagib and uh, Nasser, they go visit him. In fact, there's even a picture, I couldn't find it, where he kisses his beard, because that's what you do in the Muslim world. Uh, no, 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 they're in the posture of trying to say, we're progressive, we're not anti-Semitic, we may be against Israel, we're not against the Jews, and all that sort of thing. Now, um, through numerous intermediaries, Israel approached Nasser in the years 52 to 56. Even though they're at war, behind the scenes, a lot of uh, conversations were going on. I'm going to show you an extended period, which is in English, so you can see for yourself, in which they're going to, uh, you'll have an Arab diplomat and an Israeli diplomat. The Israeli was, was Zalman Devon who was a big macher in the, uh, in the foreign ministry, worked for Moshe Charette. And you'll see that they were talking behind the scenes, unofficially in Paris, 
to try to work out some kind of a deal. Problem is, you couldn't work out a deal. We know today, you don't have to be a cynic, just a realist to know, ain't never going to be a peace between these guys because they, the agenda is, is to wipe out Israel. I mean, that's the way it goes. But Nasser, in this early period, you could argue with what I said, and, and, and many will. But Nasser, in this period, was like feeling his way, and how should it be towards Israel? Let me, uh, let me uh, sh- uh, uh, run this by you, and you, you can see it for yourself. Jarette, Ben-Gurion's foreign minister, initiated more secret contacts. Jarette believed the best way to ensure the security of Israel was to understand the Arabs and negotiate peace. Jarette sent Yvonne to Paris, the UN General Assembly's temporary home. For Egyptians, talking to Israelis was taboo. So Abdelrahman Sadek was nervous when he was summoned by President Nasser. I went in and I found Gamal Abdul Nasser standing in the middle of the room. He said, I want to tell you that you have my permission to continue talks with the Israeli in Paris. The diplomats' reports were to be for Nasser's ears only. He said, I want you to see if there is a chance of avoiding bloodshed. But Nasser would not terminate the war, nor would he establish diplomatic relations or allow Israeli ships through the Suez Canal and the Straits of Tehran. Charette was disappointed. Charette's message said that we were sorry, of course, that the Egyptian government would not change its official policy, which was a clear anti-Israeli policy. Charette's repeated offers to start peace negotiations were turned down. So you see what was going on in these years, behind the scenes, but it couldn't work. Nasser was torn between making peace and not making peace. He plays with the prospect of getting some land back, uh, in, in 54, 55, 53, 54, there was all these plans. This is yesteryear, where the U.S., as we'll see, and Britain had his ideas, give back the negative and then everything will be okay. Or let's give back the area around a lot so it'll be an, a direct line between Egypt and Jordan and everything will be okay. Give back this, give back that. Um, Ben-Gurion, you got the wrong guy. I mean, you know, Ben-Gurion Charette was not, was not into that. And second of all, would it really have worked? You know, it's one of these situations where you offer, offer, offer him, and then we'll go. See, Nasser at the end of the day was a big liar, among other things. And he was a slippery customer, even though he was attractive in other ways. And uh, Ben-Gurion, though, is freaking out because he sees that Nasser is the new Kamal Pasha. He's, he's, the, he's the charismatic out of leader. He freaks out that Nasser is getting traction throughout the entire world. Nasser may be planning to create a huge coalition to attack Israel. He's the guy that could do it. The main problem, as I told you, was Nasser was a rug merchant kind of uh, negotiator, you know, trying to get all you can out of here. And Nasser succeeds, unfortunately, in getting the Palestinian question becoming a fixture in the emerging third world, whose emergence first happens in the 50s, because they don't get their independence till the 50s. Um, and so Nasser becomes a main leader of the, of the group of uh, four. These are the leaders. I mean, it's a billion people, you know, between Indonesia and India and Yugoslavia, uh, nothing in Egypt. Uh, you know, you're talking about a huge group, and they want to be neither for the West nor for the East. They want to play in the middle, play America and Russia off against each other. So Nasser 
instead of being simply the leader of Egypt, becomes a huge figure in the third world. They, and then they have the Bandung Conference in, Indo, in, in, in Indonesia in 1955, April 55. That's the first third world big conference. And Nasser was successful in, in getting them that Israel is banned. They, Israel is a member of the uh, so-called geographic Asia, but they wouldn't allow Israel in. He gets the conference to condemn Israel as an imperialist aggressor. This is the first step, April of 55, in the delegitimation of Israel in the third world, such as you and I see, unfortunately, all the time, at the Durban conferences. I mean, now it's just a, we're so used to it, it's nothing. It starts over here, when Nasser is in this big gathering in Indonesia. Look at all the countries represented in the Bandung conference. It, it really freaked Israel out, and you can understand it. Uh, this takes place about a month after Ben-Gurion's Gaza raid, which killed a lot of Egyptian soldiers. Nasser realizes he's militarily weaker than Israel, which has been arming full throttle since 48. Um, and therefore, Nasser, at this Bandung conference, hooks up with Chow Enlai, the uh, number two guy in China, Red China, complaining about his inability to get weapons to modernize his army. The Israelis are hitting me. I don't know what to do about it. There's Chow Enlai. And um, Chow Enlai very famously says, why don't you go to Russia? And uh, Nasser hesitates. If I go to Russia, it will alienate the next two guys, right? The Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, and his brother, who was the head of the CIA. Under Eisenhower, the two brothers, one ran the State Department, one ran the CIA, and the slogan of John Foster Dulles is, Halonu Atolitsarenu. Are you for America or not? Right? Not for America, it ain't for Russia. From Russia, get out of here, right? And Nasser, his whole career, is trying to say, no, I'm for me, and I want to do this. And Dulles is saying, it's a, you know, uh, fish or cup bag, you know, who, make, up, make up your mind. Tell us what, what, what's going on over here. And uh, all I can tell you is that uh, the result is that Nasser uh, eventually will go to Russia, as you'll see. I'll tell you a very important point once again. Nasser left the military in his entire career to his number two guy, to his uh, best friend, who was a jerk, thank God. Uh, Abdul Hakim Amr, who uh, he had been a colonel, like Nasser, I want you to understand, and anybody has any military knowledge whatsoever, a colonel can't run a brigade. And a colonel certainly can't run a division. They don't know how. And a colonel certainly can't run an army. Right? They don't have that kind of training. The way it's supposed to work is like this. You spend so-and-so many years as a lieutenant, so-and-so many years as a captain. It's not there for fun. There's a, there, there's a savara behind it. Then you get experience as a major. After a while, then you move to a lieutenant colonel, then a colonel, then a brigadier. You know, it, it, it's not there just for, 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 for decorations on, on, on the shoulders. You have a certain amount of managerial experience. Could you take a person, think about this for a second, take a person who runs part of the drugstore and now make him head of the whole chain. You can't do it. So Abdul Hakim Amr had been a colonel from a military family, and he was politically a Nasser's ally. They were both you know, really tight together. As Nasser says, you're the defense minister, you're the commander-in-chief of the armies, all the resident, and he remained that until the 67 war. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons, my friends, that Israel won the 67 war, thank God. One of the main reasons was the head of the Egyptian army was a boob. You see? They had huge uh, uh, weapons and armaments, and they had a, a trained uh, a, a staff. You know what I mean? They put a lot of money into it, but the top guy making the top decisions uh, was a fool. Uh, you take my word for it, or wait a couple years and we'll get to it. Now, <laughs> this was a good thing for Israel. That's all I can tell you. Really, when you look at the events, it's going on in the Arab world, you could really say, On the other hand, Egypt does go to Russia. Uh, and it will be transformed by Russia into an actual real threat to Israel for the first time ever. Because I've been telling you over and over again, 
Under the old system, Egypt had a poor and, and weak army. And now they won't, at least potentially. Uh, Nasser goes for it. There he gets the other Khrushchev. Next thing you know, they're getting MiGs, and they're getting tanks, and, uh, and first they get the junk, but after a while they get the good stuff, and when they get the good stuff, Israel freaks out because for the first time, Israel's isolation is greater than it ever was for, uh, since 48. Nasser has proved to be a formidable foe, and Israel starts to see existential threat. I'm building up what's going to end up being a sonic campaign. Because Israel got really scared. He said, oh my God, now we have something we never had before, which is an enemy army that Mamish could break through, could destroy us. Will Nasser prove to be a formidable military foe? This is the big question in Israel in 55 and 56. Will his unstoppable success so far progress into military victory and Khurban Medinat Israel? After 55, after this deal that he makes with Russia, the Israelis routinely bracket Hitler and Nasser. Okay, you see this over and over again in the speeches and in the pictures. Just like Hitler was a mortal threat, so is Nasser. Now, in looking back in retrospect, how can you compare Hitler with Nasser? Right? That's not how they started at the time. And they, and they knew one thing. If he'll win, if, if he'll win, he will kill everybody. The only thing is, he did not have the uh, German army. Uh, when Moshe Dayan takes over as defenseman in 1967, he said, we're not facing the, the German army over here. <laughs> he tells the soldiers... Uh, but, the, but the Israelis, including Ben Gurion, they really they did believe it, and um, it's not something to make fun of just because we want. Um, s- many Arabs also will bracket Nasser and Hitler they, as a positive thing. They say, "Good, Hitler wiped out the, 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 the Jews, and Nasser wiped out the Jews." You see it. What is Israel to do? Should they go? Can, will America help them? It, it, it's not Truman anymore with Eddie Jacobson, you know? In the old days, in, in 48 to 52, where it's come to work, they called uh, Jacobson and said, tell Truman to, to, to give Israel weapons or, or help us against Nasser. Now you have a different crew. Who do you have in 52 to 56? Eisenhower and Dulles. It's a different element. We'll talk about next week. That's a lot less sympathetic. Let's put it that way. Can, can, you, can you trust them? Uh, it's a different wind blowing from the White House. Let's put it that way. And so their hard choices face the Israeli decision makers. After 55, we could argue whether it was their own fault or not, but the bottom line is they face hard choices over here. What to do about the new threat that has emerged that never existed before with this Nasser guy armed with the Russian weapons and Vas That is something we'll continue. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.